When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the week two edition of the fourth quarter chaos podcast from the fans First sports network college football feed. My name is Matt Tamanini and I'm joined as always by Corey Cohen. Corey, how chaotic was your Saturday? Because I know you didn't just sit on the couch and watch football all day. So you were you were bouncing around. How how crazy were you running around on Saturday? It was a little crazy. It uh, I I had a friend's birthday party. I went to the U.S. Open was on the championship. Coco Golf getting a huge victory. Just 19 years old. That was really exciting. So it was. I, I won't I won't lie. It was a little difficult to manage going back and forth, keeping my phone on. There was a TV at the function, and but that that's what we love, right? Not the entire world doesn't shut down on Saturdays as much as we would love it to. So because Does of it? that. Uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> so because of that, we find our ways to watch these games wherever, whenever we can. And uh, and it was it was still a really fun Saturday at college football. And I got to tell you, the the Internet is often a horrible cesspool of awfulness. But if you find the right corners, there are people doing God's work, doing yeoman's work, cutting up nearly every single major college football game cutting out all of the commercials all of the stoppages you can watch games in like 20 minutes and just see the plays and you do that on time and a half speed it's 15 minutes so like if you miss games there are ways if you head over to youtube to be able to watch anything that you might possibly miss but we're going to dive into all of the major action from week two here on the fourth quarter chaos podcast how we do it is we run through some of the biggest games some of the most exciting games some of the craziest games and of course the most chaotic games possible to make sure that you have all of the information about all of the action that you might have missed. We're also going to run through the scores of all of the major games that happened on Saturday and also those that happened on Thursday and Friday as well. And then, Corey, what we do after the the top games that we talk about, we assign them a chaos rating. And then at the end of the show, we total up all of the chaos ratings to give the week as a whole its overall chaos rating to be able to compare them throughout every single week of the college football season. Last week, Corey, we came up with a week one chaos rating of 519 points. I'm not going to lie. I'm not sure we're going to hit that this week. There were some good games. I don't know that they were as chaotic as week one, though. What about you? I'm in agreement with you. And I have to say, we last week on last week's podcast, we like idiots recorded it before the Clemson Duke game because that game had some chaos to it. That's an oops from us. So that with that, we had our rating last week that didn't even get factored into it. The Clemson Duke upset. So this week didn't have an upset quite like that. Didn't have the full chaos games like uh, Colorado TCU, but 
it was still a good week of college football. So let's go back and do that because the reason we recorded earlier is because this podcast comes out before Monday, the Monday night game would have been. So we had to record because of our schedule. Let's take out one game from there. I'm not going to take out like the two lowest games because that would kind of be cheating, but I'm going to take a, a, a score out from the middle. And that's the, hmm, let's see, one that was kind of middling. Let's take out the Fresno State and Purdue game. That was a 48 on the chaos rating. You talked about the Duke-Clemson game on another podcast in this feed, Action Packed, that covers the ACC. So you know this game very well. We both watched it, but you already broke it down in one podcast. So give me a chaos rating for Duke-Clemson that wrapped up week one. Oh, that, that's tough. So there's one play in there that was so chaotic. The Clemson fumble right at the goal line that was returned by Duke all the way down the field. It's going to haunt Tigers fans' nightmares for a while, I think. Uh, I don't think it quite got to the level of Colorado TCU last week, but it's up there. I'm going to say an 84. I'll say an 84 for Clemson Duke. The only reason it's not higher is because Clemson didn't end up getting that close at the end, but there were some sloppy plays there that were full of chaos. I'll go in 84. I think that's good. That gives us a, a revised week one total of 555, which just feels chaotic enough. Like it's so close to 666. Like I feel like <laughs> there's some sort of chaos vibes going on. Well, there. look, so, that, that's the, it's the blue devil's work, right? That's <laughs> very good. Very good. Yes. So we will see if week two can rise to that level of chaos rating. I'm not sure that it can, but we're going to start with the game of the week, Corey, with number three, Alabama, hosting number 11, Texas. At this point, if you are listening to this podcast, chances are that you know that Texas pulled the road upset and beat the Crimson Tide 34-24. to It was a game that saw Quinn Ewers really step up and assert himself as a legitimate Top-tier quarterback, he went 24 of 38 for 349 yards passing and three touchdowns. But, Corey, why don't you run us through this game, all of the big plays, all of the chaos, and we'll go from there. It was a fun game. In the first half, it it wasn't too exciting. It kind of looked almost like an NFL game. There were quality players. There were some big plays. Nothing too chaotic. And funny enough, actually, for part of it, I was watching with a diehard Texas fan, a Texas alum. And so he was incredibly into it. That was fun. It was a good game. As you said, Quinn Ewers, he's like the anti-Samson. He cut the mullet off, and all of a sudden, <laughs> he's now a phenomenal quarterback. Quinn Ewers, 24 for 38. He threw for just a speck under 350 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. He looked so good out there. There was a big interception that Texas had in that game. There was also a funny play, talk about chaos, where he threw the ball it bounced off a player on the field, on the line. Mm -hmm. He caught it himself and then ran it for a couple yards. Yeah, and that was just after they were going for it on fourth and one, and he went up under center, which he doesn't do very often, and the snap never really got to him. He never had it. The running back alertly picked up the ball from the ground and ran around the end to pick up the first down. If Ewers would have kept the ball, he would not have gotten that first down. They had to review it because initially it was ruled a fourth down fumble, which means only the person who fumbled it could pick up the ball and advance it. But since Ewers never actually had possession of the ball, it was a muffed snap, meaning that the running back could advance it. So between that play and then there was a first down play, I think that, that one where... 
you mentioned that Ewers caught his own deflected pass, was on second down. So in the course of three plays, there were two absolutely bonkers snaps that both went essentially in the Longhorns' favor. Yeah, things just worked out for the Longhorns. And it's funny because this is a program where things tend to do the opposite. (laughs) They go against them. They find ways to lose. But in this game, it worked out for them. And then later in the game, in the second half, we saw in in the third quarter and into the fourth quarter, it became what seemed to be a heavyweight knockout fight. It was touchdown Texas, touchdown Bama, touchdown Texas. That was the game that I think some of us were expecting. And... Then down the stretch, it sort of settled down. Texas got into a rhythm. They had a 10-point lead, and they just mechanically moved the chains. They kept possession, and they drained the clock and held on for a 10-point win. It was it was a little slow. Then it got exciting, and then down the stretch, Texas just forced their will for a really impressive victory that has some asking the question, is Texas back? No, we're not doing that yet. It's too early. <laughs> it's way I too understand. Early. It's good. Let them. The, the The problem has not generally been in recent years that Texas can't rise up in good uh, against good competition. The problem has been when they go off and play middling to even below average competition that they don't show up. I was not surprised at all that the Longhorns showed up for this game against Alabama, especially after the fact that they probably would have or at least could have won the game last year in Austin had Ewers not gotten injured. They were ready for this game. Talk to me when they go on the road to Manhattan, Kansas, or or even Lawrence, Kansas, or go play a, a down Baylor team who we're going to talk about here in a second. When they can beat the teams that they're supposed to beat, then we can talk about them being back because until that happens, uh, they're very good. I think they are obviously playoff contenders but i'm not worried about texas getting up for big games i'm worried about them getting up for games that they should win but i think what really spelled the difference on saturday is the fact that steve scar steve sarkeesian was aggressive like and that added to some of the fun that you talked about but it felt like a heavyweight fight because sark he was going for it not just on you know short yardage and fourth down and stuff but like They were airing the ball out. They were throwing haymakers. It was really an exciting game, especially because Bama was kind of sloppy. You know, they they had two touchdowns called back on penalties. They really did nothing to impact Ewers in terms of pressure. They had no sacks on the day, um, which is kind of crazy for an Alabama defense. I think that's one of the things that shocked me the most. There was so much conversation about the quarterback situation in Tuscaloosa this year, and Jalen Milrow was fine. He was 14 of 27 for 255, two touchdowns and two interceptions. Um, He also had 15 rushes for 44 yards. But like, I didn't expect Alabama's defense to not be able to get a single sack against uh, against Texas and only had two TFLs for seven yards. So to me, the, the shock about this wasn't that the offense for Alabama had its moments of not looking cohesive. It was the fact that the defense wasn't able to do essentially anything against Quinn Ewers, especially in that passing attack. Yeah, it's interesting because in a lot of these games, you talk about did Texas win it or did Alabama lose it? And to me, it is a mixture of both. Texas got up for the game. They do look like a really good team. Ewers looks like the guy at quarterback. And the Big 12 doesn't look incredible. And so on one hand, I could see Texas making it to the college football playoff. On the other hand, my friend who went to Texas would tell you that there's a very good chance that Texas could lose one of their next few games to an unranked Wyoming or Baylor or Kansas. So there's that. But then on the other end, when you talk about Alabama, 
this program is just not quite at the level that they used to be at. This isn't the typical Nick Saban-led Bama team. And part of that is the quarterback. But as you said, the defense, that's been Alabama's bread and butter for so long. Alabama was built on defense. And the fact that they didn't get pressure on Quinn Ewers, they allowed him and the Texas offense to have this phenomenal game. That's pretty shocking when you consider Alabama up until say two years ago, they were the college football program built on defense and they just don't seem to have it at the moment. They're still a very good team. Don't get me wrong. They're right around the top 10 in, uh, in my personal top 25, but in terms of being one of the top teams in a playoff contender, they just don't seem to be there. Yeah. I think that they're going to have some issues this season in the sec, whether that is in the West or not, they're going to have to play, AM, who we're going to talk about here soon, they have to play LSU. Of course, they always have to play Auburn, or maybe they get through the West and end up facing off against Georgia, or I guess somebody technically. Um, yeah, it'll be Georgia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, maybe, but I, I think you're right. I think they are going to be, this is the, the, the Alabama that we see. I would not be surprised if Saban ends up pulling some sort of change at the quarterback position. We've seen him do it in much better circumstances, like halftime of a national championship game. So... <laughs> Maybe Jalen Milrow isn't the answer, but I, I don't know that they have somebody else who could be the answer. So we'll have to wait and see what happens moving forward to them. But it does feel like this is a dip in the Alabama dynasty. I am not ready, and I don't know that I ever will be until like I'm forced to admit it. But like I don't know that I'm ready to say that like the dynasty is over or that Nick Saban is washed. Like I don't I, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think it's a dip. I would not be surprised if they come back and win the national championship next year. I just think that they're probably on the outside looking in by a pretty obvious margin this year, Corey. Agreed. Yeah, this is the second year in a row that I think Alabama is, again, a very good team, but just probably not going to be in that playoff conversation. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what do you think in terms of a chaos rating for this one? There's there wasn't too much chaos. The fact that Texas actually beat Bama, it was in Tuscaloosa. That's in there. You factor in some of those crazy plays we talked about. I'll say a, a 35. 35. Okay, we have it. All right, let's go up to the next game on our list here. And this is one that you watched, and I had it on like a YouTube TV four-screen multi-view, so I wasn't paying super close attention to it. But this is number 17, North Carolina, hosting Appalachian State. And look, App State might be a G5 team. They might be a mid-major in college football, but they always get up for good teams. And coming off of North Carolina's win over South Carolina, we thought North Carolina was a pretty good team. And uh, they were they were pushed to the limit and beyond by the Mountaineers. Oh, this was a fun game. So North Carolina versus App State. This is a matchup that will not be played moving forward. Mac Brown is thrilled about that. After the game, he said they're a great program. It's a great rivalry for someone else to play. He is done with them <laughs> because they always give him fits. Uh, App State, they gave North Carolina one hell of a battle yet again. So let's go all the way to the end of regulation. App State, they UNC has a chance to kick a game-winning field goal. App State, on the 
field goal attempt had 12 players on the field. So with seven seconds left, UNC gets even closer to the end zone to kick a potential game winning field goal. And they missed college kickers, right? They missed the field goal to win the game in regulation. So it goes to overtime. Then it goes to double overtime. UNC gets the ball first. Drake may he's hesitant. So they get the touchdown Drake may on the, forced extra point conversion or two point conversion, because now once you get to double overtime, after you get a touchdown, Mm -hmm. you have to go for two Drake may he scrambles out to his right. There's clearly an opening to run, but he hesitates just for a moment. And because of the hesitation, the app state defense picked up on it, drew him in. Then he finally decided to run to the end zone. He got crushed at about the two. It was a hard hit. And so now all of a sudden, UNC is up only six. App State just needs a touchdown. And then the conversion, they can win the game outright. North Carolina fans were terrified. But the defense held on. The Tar Heels, not known for their defense last year or this year, but they held on in double overtime. They prevented App State from making their way into the end zone. And North Carolina, for the second straight year, barely makes it out of a matchup against App State. What did you think? Like, this is an ACC school. You cover the ACC on Action Packed. You also uh, run Pit Talk Network. Did this game change your opinion of North Carolina or is App State just one of those teams that's hard for anybody to beat? And it actually is a pretty good sign that North Carolina was able to weather some mistakes in the storm to to actually pull off the victory. Por que no los dos? I mean, to me, it really is a <laughs> bit of both. On one hand, North Carolina, we saw what they did just a week ago against South Carolina. Drake May looks legit. The whole team actually looks very good. And so I'm not ready to say that that was a fluke in week one and North Carolina isn't very good. But on the other hand, you know, App State, th- this is this is a really good program. And they give teams fits, especially within the state of North Carolina. I don't know exactly what it is, if they've got a chip on their shoulder, but the Mountaineers can give teams hell, and they are a giant killer. They nearly did it again. They did it last year uh, in, in a different game. They they nearly did it last year against UNC, and they nearly did it this time. If I'm Mac Brown, I am completely on the same page as he is. I am not scheduling App State, not because I don't respect them, but because I fear them. And so, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think North Carolina is a good team. I do think they have their flaws, but also App State, that's a difficult matchup. And I think we're going to have to wait and see. All of a sudden, North Carolina, they've got a matchup with Minnesota. That should be interesting next week. Then they're at Pitt. Pitt doesn't look as good as they did uh, not too long ago. We'll see how that uh, fares. But North Carolina, I still think they're one of the better teams in the ACC. They've got an outside chance at making a run at the college football playoff. But this was this was a tricky game for them. It was a trap game. I came into the season expecting Drake May to be a Heisman candidate. He was 24 for 32 for 269 yards, two touchdowns and two interceptions in the week one win over South Carolina in Week two against App State, he was 21 of 30, which is a a great percentage, but only for 208 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. North Carolina really did most of its work on the ground. Amarion Hampton ran for 234 yards on the ground. Drake May did have 57 yards rushing in in a touchdown on the ground. But like, I'm not here to say Drake May is not as good as, as I initially expected because it's two weeks into the season and there's a lot that can happen between now and then. But I expected him to be more than what we've seen 
thus far. Great percentage, but he's he's averaging less than 10 yards of completion. It's not exactly the the show that I expected from him. So I, we we do a show, uh, Fame and Fortune and everything that goes with it, where we look at the Heisman Trophy in the college football playoffs. I'm probably not going to have him in my list of contenders for the Heisman this week just because he's looked fine, but not Heisman worthy through two weeks. That can certainly change moving forward, but we will have to wait and see on that. So give me a chaos rating for App State in North Carolina, Corey. Well, anytime you've got App State that brings a team to overtime, double overtime, and you've got a missed field goal to potentially win the game, it's got to be up there. I will say a 77. All right, that's a good one. All right, we are going to go out west a little bit and talk about the number 12 Utah Utes visiting the Baylor Bears who lost to Texas State during week one. Not something that we are used to seeing from Baylor in recent years, but this ended up being a game that they really felt like they had to win to kind of to resuscitate their season. And this was an interesting one. It was not exactly a high scoring game. Utah ended up winning 20 to 13, but the score was tied with just a minute 59 left. Utah actually scored a touchdown to get the score to 13-13. Then on the ensuing possession, Baylor quarterback Sawyer Robertson throws what can only be described as an absolutely awful, ill-advised interception. He basically threw it in. I mean, I, I can't even say he threw it into coverage because he basically just threw it to a Utah defender. Yeah. Um, there's There was a minute 35 left. It set up the Utes at the plus 30-yard line. Plenty of time to go in. No problems here. They should be able to, to milk this down to win the game. And they kind of did. They took their time. It looked like they were setting up for a field goal. But, Corey, Baylor did something that we are seeing more teams do more often here in the last couple of years. But it's absolutely the right thing to do. Utah running back Jalen Glover was looking like he was just running it to the right hash to get a little bit of an easier field goal on the side where the field goal kicker wants it. But Baylor, Baylor not only let him score, they essentially like pushed him towards the end zone. <laughs> but then like Glover did what you're supposed to do too. Like I would have been fine if he actually fell to the ground at the one yard line. That probably would have been the smartest thing to do. But what he, the next smartest thing to do is he ran parallel to the goal line towards um towards the uh towards the sideline and i'm not sure if he was going to score but he was eventually pushed into the end zone by baylor linebacker mike smith jr that took the score to 20 to 13 with the extra point in favor of utah but we weren't done there wasn't much time left but that wasn't it with nine seconds left on the clock, that's it, nine seconds left on the clock, Robertson completes a 47-yard pass to Baylor wide receiver Hal Presley, who I'm not sure if he actually realized how much time was on the clock because he started to run down the field a little bit and eventually stepped out of bounds. Initially, the game was over. They ruled that the clock had expired. On review, he did hit the, the, the white paint, the white chalk on the side of the field with one second left. <laughs> which means that Baylor had one more shot and uh, they were only from like the 22 yard line. So Baylor snaps it. Utah brings the house. They blitz everybody. Robertson throws one up into the end zone and wide receiver Katron Jackson Jr. Uh, to me, it looked like he was clearly interfered with by cornerback Miles uh, Battle. Battle had like one arm around him and then the other arm was like an arm bar keeping uh, the receivers Jackson's arm down. They didn't call it. So I guess it's not a pass interference. 
and it kind of went wanting and Utah ends up winning that game 20 to 13 Baylor falls to 0 and 2 a pretty boring game until the last two minutes Corey but yeah. uh I if I'm Baylor I'm I'm pretty upset about the no call in the end zone at the end of that game yeah it's tricky because on one hand yes you're going to be upset about that it was a little bit iffy but on the other hand they had this game they should have won this game. They had all yeah. the chances in the world to score in the fourth quarter to give themselves some breathing room. They didn't do it. They let Utah tie the game with just under two minutes left. Then they throw that awful interception, as you mentioned. And then in the final seconds, they allow Utah to score again, which we're in agreement. That was the right thing to do in terms of do you let Utah take it all the way down to one second, kick a game winning field goal, or do you let them walk into the end zone and then you at least give yourself a chance to go and tie the game with your offense. So we're in agreement that it was smart to let Utah get the touchdown in the final seconds. But still, in those final two minutes, they allowed Utah to dominate them, both offensively and defensively. Baylor had every chance to put the game away. They didn't do it. And Utah, they were able to capitalize. For a while, it looked like they were going down, and Baylor was going to mm -hmm. save this early part of their season. But the Utes hang on. Dave Aranda starts 0-2. Things are not looking good in Waco. That's not the first time that's been said in the history of the world. Um, but yeah, not the second either. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know what to make of this Utah team, though, either, because I, I, I've been high on Utah for the last couple of seasons. I think they're they're one of the most consistent programs in college football. They beat Florida during week one and Florida is not great, but, you know, decent team uh, there. Baylor has held. The two teams, Baylor, um, Utah has held Baylor and Florida to a combined 24 points, which is great, but they're also only averaging 22 points themselves. So it's not like they're they're clicking on all cylinders, especially on offense. So it'll be interesting well, to see I what happens. Yeah, yeah and, and, I, and I will sort of give them the the excuse and I, I will stand up for Utah in that Cam Rising, Cam Rising. has not yeah. played yet. He's still injured. If he's healthy, he could be a. Heisman finalist level quarterback, and he's just not there yet. He's not yeah. healthy. He didn't play against either of these teams. So I'm in complete agreement. The offense has not been clicking, but I'm going to save some judgment for once Cam Rising comes back and see how they are then. Yeah, he tore his ACL in the bowl game last year. So it's one of those things where like you think he's getting close to coming back, but you never know with with ACL injuries how long that's going to take. So whether or not they're able to capitalize on how good this defense is probably does depend on the knee of, of Cam Rising. So uh, um, let's let's collaborate on this one here. I feel like this is a pretty chaotic game. I think the last couple minutes made it chaotic. The first 58 minutes, not as much, <laughs> but, but I'm, I'm feeling good enough to go in the 60 ish range. What are you thinking on a, on a chaos rating for this one, Corey? Really funny. I actually was thinking about 65. All right. 65. It is. I'm good with that. Let's run through some of the other scores before we get back to the chaos ratings. Um, a, a game that actually ended up being kind of a surprising blowout. I, I thought that, uh, Illinois might be able to knock off Kansas on the road, but it happened on Friday night. The Kansas Jayhawks beat the Illinois Fighting Illini 34-23. That was the only game of real note that happened before Saturday. Um, Georgia beat Ball State, shocking, the, the Fighting David Letterman's 45-3. The reason I wanted to bring this one up, I don't know if you saw this one, Corey, but in the second quarter, UGA was already up 14-0. The Ball State quarterback, Caden Samanza, 
threw a ball in the general direction of tight end Maximus Webster. First off, Maximus, great first name. Amazing. The only prop the only problem is is that Webster was not only not looking, but he was actively engaged in blocking. So the ball literally bounced off the back of his leg down towards the ankle. Um, and it kind of almost ricocheted back up and directly into the hands of Georgia linebacker Chaz Chambliss. It wasn't a chaotic game, but that was certainly a chaotic play, Corey. Like they're calling it the kick pick which I guess is if he would have returned it, it would have been a kick pick six or something, but um, a chaotic play, an interesting one, certainly fun to watch. Uh, number two, Michigan beat UNLV 35 to seven. Number four, Florida State beat up on Southern Miss 66 to 13. Number five, Ohio State beat Youngstown State 35 to seven. USC beat uh, Stanford 56 to 10. And what will probably be the last time that these two teams play for the foreseeable future uh, USC has a lot of rivals, so if they're going to try to keep any of these Pac-8, Pac-10, Pac-12 rivals on their schedule, uh, they're going to have to be really picky with that moving forward as they enter the Big Ten. Penn State, number seven, beat up on Delaware, 63-7. to Number eight, Washington beat uh, Tulsa, 43-10. to Number nine, Tennessee beat Austin P. 30 to uh, 30 to 13 and then rounding out the top 10 Notre Dame went on the road and beat another ACC team 45 to 24 over NC State. So another team, a lot of ACC stuff going on here uh, in the first couple of weeks with some craziness, but number 23, Texas A&M went on the road to Miami. And this was a game that where it, it felt to me, Corey, that like these two teams were very similar proud programs that think they should be in the national championship contention every year and generally aren't because they look good on paper, but aren't actually able to finish. And this is another year where Texas A&M is probably going to be in that boat because the hurricanes won 48 to 33. And it was in a really impressive fashion. What was interesting is that it was a pretty close back and forth game until the start of the fourth quarter. Miami, actually got a turnover right before the start of the fourth quarter and they were in positive territory. But when the fourth quarter started, they were only up 31 to 26, but they just kind of laid it on in the, in that fourth quarter in the final 15 minutes of that game. What I thought was the most striking here is, is that for years we've talked about the fact that Texas A&M was a defense first team and 2020, they were the number nine defense in the country. Number tw- in 2021, they were number 14. They were down a little bit last year with 50 uh, at number 52. In the last couple of years, their offense has really not been great. 71st in 2021, 93rd last year. But now it looks like Jimbo's finally found an offensive coordinator, but their defense has let up in this game. They gave up 451 yards to Miami, and 374 of them were through the air. Um, uh, Hurricane quarterback Tyler Van Dyke was th- 21 of 30 for 374 yards and five touchdowns. And it just looked like for every offensive blow that Texas A&M could land, Miami was like landing two especially in that fourth quarter. So where it looked like it was a back-and-forth game throughout the first three quarters, Miami just turned it on and left – left the Aggies in the dust. So uh, I was impressed with Miami did not expect them to be that good offensively. Um, and they weren't great defensively. I mean, Texas A&M had 433 yards of their own 336 through the air. Neither team was, was all that great 
uh, rushing the ball. They both averaged AM averaged 3.3 yards per carry. Miami averaged 3.2. So I was kind of surprised that it ended up this high of a, of a scoring game, Corey, but you watch the ACC is, is Miami is Miami for real? They, they might be. I think the Miami offense is for real. Tyler Van Dyke actually looks really good, and he's putting up some big numbers in that conversation with Drake May, the way that he's that the two of them have been playing. Tyler Van Dyke has been basically just about as good as Drake May thus far early in this season. I think the Miami offense is for real. Not sure about the defense. It's tough. This game was going to tell me a lot about both of these programs, and what it told me is that Miami actually is good. Now, we don't know exactly how good. The other thing it told me is that Texas A&M, they're not looking so hot. And Jimbo Fisher, those boosters that get upset about a bunch, they might start getting upset and impatient with Jimbo Fisher because Texas A&M, they, according to their boosters, should be one of the top teams in the SEC, and they haven't been for years. They've generally been good right around the top 25, but this team does not look particularly special Miami looks good Texas A&M they're looking a little bit weak I would not be surprised if Jimbo Fisher has some uh, has some boosters trying to get meetings with him coming up soon so much talent like they just have so much talent and they aren't able to get it together I don't know if that's coaching or if that's just a vibe thing a construction of the locker room when you spend so much money on NIL maybe the chemistry of the team is different than what it would be through a traditionally recruited team not that everybody isn't using NIL but like A&M has kind of been the poster child for how these things go nowadays oil money Uh, yeah yeah exactly so it's not exactly been a um, a smooth sailing uh, down there in College Station um, all right. What do you think in terms of a uh, chaos rating for this one? I don't know how how chaotic it was. I mean, it was certainly a back and forth game, which was exciting. I don't know if it was chaotic, but, it, you know, I, I think if it was an exciting rating, it would be fairly high. Uh, but what do you think in terms of a chaos rating, Corey? I was thinking somewhere in the 30s. Does that does that sound about right? That's probably I would probably have gone a little higher just because of the excitement factor. But it wasn't okay. like a nail biter uh, by any stretch of the imagination. OK, let's let's go. Uh... Let's go with like a 41. Fair enough. Let's do it. All right. The the game that so far in this college football season that has the highest chaos rating we mentioned at the top of the show was week one's Colorado victory over TCU. We're going to go back to the buffs as they opened up their 2023 season at home against the visiting Nebraska Cornhuskers. This was a very weird game. And this was weird because for... I don't know, most of the, uh, you know, for most of the game, Nebraska, it felt close, like into the third quarter. It felt like it was a game that could go either way, even if Colorado had a little bit of the control over the game. Um, It was only 13 to seven until midway through the third quarter. But from there, Colorado just poured it on and pulled away uh, and ended up winning 36 to 14. They neither team scored in the first quarter. Interestingly enough, like it was super chaotic because Nebraska uh, quarterback Jeff Sims turned the ball over three times in the third in the first half. There was an interception and two fumbles. If I didn't know better, it would seem like this was the same old Nebraska, Corey. It was a, 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 a team that despite the fact that they have brought in a new coach in Matt Rule, looked to have a lot of the same issues that it has in years past. Now, this was not one where they lost by one score which has kind of been their MO in recent seasons. 
but they just had problems over and over and over again. The Colorado wide receivers just kept getting behind the Nebraska DBs. Like there were times when they had three, four, five yard cushions behind DBs. And some of that was because the, the buff receivers are really good. Um, part of that is Shador Sanders was keeping plays alive with his feet. And that always gives the benefit to the wide receivers who know where they're going and the DBs who have to chase them. I mean, but then part of it, I think is that like Nebraska's defense is just not good. Um, they did force Colorado to punt on their first four possessions. Things looked to be going well. It was going according to script, at least uh, on the defensive side of the ball. But after Sims's second fumble, the buffs just rolled. And it was one of those things where they aren't the same numbers as we saw against TCU in week one. But Shador Sanders was still electric, 31 of 42 for 393 yards and two touchdowns. Um, You still had... Um, a couple wide receivers doing really well. We talked so much about Travis Hunter last week, but Xavier Weaver went for 10 receptions for 170 yards uh, yesterday with a with a touchdown. Uh, Travis Hunter did have three receptions for 73 yards. Um, but it just like, you know, after a while, Nebraska just showed they're not good. And this is, you know, we always talk about Matt Rule being a program rebuilder. He did it at Temple, did it at Baylor. And that's true, but it's not usually in the first seasons. Like the his first year right. at Temple, his first year at Baylor, he had to kind of like pull everything down, strip things to the studs, and rebuild from there. So while I do think eventually he's going to get things turned around as much as you possibly can in Lincoln, Nebraska, I don't know. I think it's very hard to recruit to Lincoln. But if he's going to make it happen, it's not going to be this year. It's going to be in the future. And I think after a, a pretty decent first quarter on defense, um, they, it kind of showed that they're just not where they need to be. So I don't know, not the most chaotic game, but I think anytime you have a quarterback who turns it over a total of three times in the first half and they end up having another turnover in the fourth, uh, and I think I was in the fourth quarter as well. Like there's a little bit of chaos going on in this one. Yeah, there, there definitely was some, I mean, Jeff Sims, he, he looks bad. Matt Rule, as you said, he he can turn programs around, but it's not this quickly. And it takes at least a pretty solid quarterback. Jeff Sims so far does not seem like that guy. And then on the other end, talk about turning programs around quickly. Deion Sanders is doing one hell of a job. Shador Sanders, another great game at quarterback, as you mentioned. And then Travis Hunter, solid game he had a bunch of snaps but it was Xavier Weaver the transfer from USF who really is now looking like wide receiver number one out there in Boulder he looks phenomenal the Buffaloes look great the ability to turn this program around this quickly it's frankly incredible because what is normal in terms of rebuilding a program is what is happening or might happen at Nebraska, which it takes a while. The first season, there's growing pains. You figure it out. Second season, you make a jump. To do it this quickly at Colorado is wild. Now, part of that is because he essentially threw out 90% of the old team (laughs) and then brought in all new transfers. So that's not typical in terms of rebuilding. But whether you have a question with it in terms of the morals, on the field, it seems to be working. These transfers have come in and have made an immediate impact. Colorado has the juice. And yeah, right now the Buffaloes look really good. I think there's a good chance that we can go into a 
heavyweight bout between Colorado and USC in just a couple of weeks. That will be thrilling. What would you say a chaos rating uh, on this Colorado-Nebraska game is? Well, I think what my final score for this one is going to be is going to be different than if I was just basing it on the game. I'm going to throw in a couple extra chaos points because of the T-shirt that Coach Prime's bodyguard was wearing. Did you see this? I did not know. His bodyguard, big dude, as you would expect, with him, you know, normally coaches, when they go onto the field uh, after the game, they're like flanked by two police officers or sheriff's officers or whatever. This was just a big dude wearing a shirt that said, F around and find out. So, (laughs) which like, that was actually Texas's mantra coming into the game against Alabama. So I guess that's working for everybody, but I'm going to throw in a few extra chaos points into the rating for that one. So... Again, not the most uh, chaotic game, but everything that is happening with Nebraska is chaotic by default. And I actually think Colorado's is chaotic as well, just because of all of the changes. But it's a it's a good chaos. Chaos can be good. Chaos can be bad. So I'm actually probably going to go. I would probably go in like the 58 to 62 range, uh, especially with the bonus points for the bodyguards T-shirt. Does that feel too high for you? I'll I'll go 58. I was thinking somewhere in the 40s, but you know what? That t-shirt, that F around and find out t-shirt from the bodyguard, that's an immediate like 10-point bump for me. So yeah, let's say right, 58 good. for Colorado because I'm with you. I think there's a positive level of chaos in Boulder. Dion's comments and post-game press conferences, his bodyguard's t-shirts, you never know what's happening out there. And, and that kind of chaos is really fun. It is. All right, let's go down to Texas. Everything is bigger in Texas, apparently including the chaos as Houston visited Rice. Rice, not exactly a traditional football power, but Houston is one of those fun G5 schools uh, from the last couple seasons dating back to when Tom Herman was there. This was a barn burner, apparently, Corey. Oh, yes. So this was a thrilling game. For some reason, I have no idea why it was on the NFL Network. But uh, Houston and Rice, far from the NFL, these two teams separated by just a couple miles. And the game could mean the game meant a lot to them. You could tell JT Daniels, now the quarterback at Rice on his fourth school. He started at USC, then went to Georgia to back up Stetson Bennett, then started for West Virginia last year. Now he's at Rice. This game was pretty wild. Rice went up a ton early. Midway through the second quarter, the Owls were up 28 to nothing. But then come the fourth quarter, Rice starts to fall apart and Houston turns it on. They allowed back-to-back-to-back Houston touchdowns, three Houston touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and it went from 28 nothing to 28-28. So four unanswered touchdowns. Absolutely bonkers. Fast forward to double overtime. We'll skip past the first overtime. In double overtime, Rice scores a touchdown by fumbling the snap. It was then picked up by Alexander. He runs it into the end zone to get the score. The two-point conversion attempt uh, was uh, failed, or excuse me, the two-point conversion attempt was successful. So then Houston, in their part of second overtime, they do score a touchdown, but the two-point conversion attempt failed. Rice wins this game 43-41. to Just a really fun game that you could tell meant a lot to both of these programs, especially on the Rice side. They hadn't won this game in 13 years. We're not sure how often this rivalry is going to be played. Again, they're just a couple miles apart down there in Houston. 
But for the Rice players, you could tell this is a big win for them. They used to be a bigger college football program. Houston has sort of supplanted them within their own city. And for Rice, this was a big win. You could tell men a lot. For me, I'm going to go chaos rating of 74. It's not too often that you have... 28 points on one end and then 28 points on another <laughs> without a single score from the opposition in between. Yeah, that's a big one. Definitely a big one. All right. Um, I'm going to run through a couple, a couple of the other scores from around the country. Number 13, Oregon went on the road to Texas Tech and ended up winning 38 to 30. Number 14, LSU rebounded after falling to Florida State in week one to beat Grambling 72 to 10. Number 15, Kansas State beat Troy, just some dude named Troy, 42 to 13. Oregon State beat UC Davis 55 to 7. Number 18, beat SMU 28 to 11 in a game that I thought might be a little closer than that. Um, but a pretty interesting matchup there nonetheless. And then number 20, Ole Miss went on the road to play number 24, Tulane. And Tulane's quarterback, starting quarterback, did not play. But they kept it close for the first three quarters-ish into the third quarter. But Ole Miss ended up pulling away and winning 37-20. to all right, let's go to let's go out to the Pacific Northwest for this next game, Corey. Number 19 Wisconsin went on the road to Pullman, Washington to take on the Cougars of Washington State. And this was a game that felt like it was not dissimilar a little bit maybe from the Rice Houston game. Wazoo was up 24 to 9 heading into halftime, but coming out of the break Wisconsin, Luke Fickle's Badgers came roaring back and they got it to 24 to 22 with just about like nine and a half minutes left. But linebacker Jaden Hicks for Wazoo ripped the ball out of Badger running back uh, Chase Malusi's hands as Wisconsin was driving and could have gone up and taken their first lead of the game. Wazoo then with the ball ran about four minutes off of the clock, which is you know a little easier this season than it might have been in years past because of the new clock rules. And then with about five and a half left, 535, former Wisconsin running back Nakia Watson pushed into the end zone from one yard out to put the Cougs up 31 to 22, which is where it would end. It's not the most chaotic game of the day, Corey, but the momentum was crazy, kind of like you talked about with Houston and Rice. In the first half, the Cougs looked unstoppable. But for the third quarter and the first five minutes of the fourth quarter, Wisconsin was the one that seemed to be unstoppable. And I think we had a lot of expectations for what Wisconsin would look like during Luke Fickle's first season. And it looked like, okay, they're settling down. It's their first road game under a new administration. They're starting to get it figured out. They're going to march off and probably win the game by 10 to 14 going away. That's not what happened. Um, So, you know... Texas and Alabama were happening at the same time as this game, but as a second screen option, it was entertaining, not the most chaotic thing, but I think the fact that a former Wisconsin running back scored the essentially game winning touchdown is kind of interesting. So it was an entertaining game, not the most chaotic. I would probably go with a, with a solid 38 on the chaos rating meter for this one. Okay, yeah, I like a I like a thirty eight rating for that. I did catch the end, and I saw the the post game interview with Jake Dickert, the head coach of Washington State, and mm-hmm. you could tell that it meant a lot to them. You know, sort of a you talk about the comparison to the Rice Houston game, and I mentioned how Rice a while ago was a bigger college football program and got sort of supplanted by Rice, and there's a somewhat similar dynamic in this one, and that Washington State right now seems to be left behind, unfortunately, in this realignment. Now there's a Pac-2, and it looks like they might be out of the Power 5 or Power 4 as it's going to be. 
And you could tell that for Washington State and Jake Dickert specifically, he's he takes that personally. And the Big Ten sort of provided the fatal blow to the Pac-12 when they took USC, UCLA. And then from there, it just crumbled. It was always going to crumble. But when those two marquee programs left, that was the beginning of the end for the Pac-whatever conference. And Washington State now on the outside looking in, you could tell that was personal. They're playing a Big Ten team. And they're also just playing for for themselves. They're playing to try to prove. In fact, he said in the postgame interview, we're a power five team. We're a or power four. I forget what he said or whatever it's going to be, but we're a power team. And because the Pac-12 was rated by multiple conferences, but starting with the Big Ten, you could see that in Jake Dickert, who's a really impressive young head coach, by the way, that there was he, there was a big chip on his shoulder going into that one. And that victory meant a lot. It's interesting because during the game, uh, Quint Kesnick, who was doing the sideline reporting for ESPN, interviewed Washington State Athletic Director Pat Chun, and actually they saw a a scoop and score touchdown while they were doing the interview. And they talked about the fact that Washington State and Oregon State are working together to essentially sue the the Pac-12 to give them information on what they have the right to use moving forward to whether that's the name, whether that's any of the information, whether it's the contracts to kind of figure out what their status is moving forward. If they can kind of rebuild the PAC 12 around Oregon state and Washington state, or if they have any assets that they can monetize moving forward. Um, it was a kind of an interesting conversation, obviously not a ton of definitive details that Chun was able to give at that point as to what the future looks like for Washington state. But it was an interesting conversation to have, especially considering that Pat Chun very well might be the next athletic director at Ohio State. He's an Ohio State alum. He worked at Ohio State for 15 years. Ohio State's current athletic director, Gene Smith, has announced that he will retire next summer. And Pat Chun, along with uh, a a few other former Buckeye administrators, have been in the the conversations about taking over that spot. So it would be very interesting to see how this all uh, all, how this all shakes out moving forward, but an interesting game, an interesting situation, and one that I'm sure we will talk about quite a bit moving forward as uh, we figure out what happens with the Pack Two uh, left out there in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, all right, so one more that I want to talk about here, Corey, that is uh, appropriate for me that I live in Central Florida here, and this was the UCF Knights heading to Boise State to take on uh, the Broncos on the Smurf turf. It was another one of these games who was not super exciting for the majority of the contest, but then with about eight minutes left, it got really, really interesting. Eight minutes left in the game, UCF calls in running back RJ Harvey to essentially run the Wildcat, and from down inside the five-yard line, he scores to put UCF up 15 to 10. So that's before any extra point or two-point conversion. They're down five, so there's no reason to kick an extra point. So they go for two. But as you were kind of mentioning with the uh, Rice-Houston game, they did not convert. So they're up 15 to 10. Boise State has the ball left with eight-ish minutes. The Broncos' backup quarterback, Maddox Madsen, is in the game, and he marches the Broncos down the field. They score a touchdown to go back up. Uh, 16 to 15 with a minute 50 left. But again, they're up 16 to 15. Kicking an extra point means nothing. So what do they do is they go for two. They don't convert either. So it is again, 16 to 15, two missed two point conversions on this one. So UCF has 
about two minutes left in the game to get into field goal range. And interestingly enough, their kicker, Colton Boomer, had already hit three field goals that game. And let's be honest, if you are a college kicker, Boomer is probably one of the best last names that you could possibly have. Not only had he hit a 33-yarder early in the game, he'd hit a 50 and a 55 already in the contest. So you're feeling really good about UCF if you can just get it across midfield and, and maybe a little bit extra. They ended up setting him up with a 40-yarder to win the game from the 23. And at the last second, his kick was a little wobbly. It looked like it might have been fading to the outside. But at the last second, it curved in and almost split the uprights completely. That gives UCF the uh, the 18-16 win. Pretty exciting finish. Again, kind of a boring game leading up there. It was four field goals for UCF in that game. But finish... Kind of exciting. Mm-hmm. They always say it in the NBA that like you really only have to watch the last couple minutes of, of an NBA game to see what happens because it's going to be close throughout. That's not always the case with college football, but pretty interesting last few minutes out there on the Smurf turf in uh, in Boise. Yeah, a lot of games out there in uh, in Boise. They they provide some chaos. I don't know what it is about the blue field. Something out there, the potatoes. I don't know what it is. But it's there's the potatoes. A, always it's the potatoes. There's always <laughs> yeah. a bit of chaos to be had up there. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go uh, this one probably... Because of that finish, the missed two-point conversions, three field goals, including a 55-yarder, which is always kind of exciting, uh, and the fact that a college kicker was able to hit four field goals, three of them 40 yards or more, uh, I'm going to go with a 51 on the chaos rating for this one. All right, solid. We've got two games left. Before that, I'm going to run through the rest of the top 25 action here. Um we talked about Duke earlier uh, with the Clemson game. They followed it up with a 42-7 win over Lafayette. 25 Clemson, who lost to Duke last week, beat Charleston Southern 66-17. Wake beat Vanderbilt 36-20. Virginia Tech lost at home to Purdue 24-17. Boston College, we talked about them last week, and Jeff Halfley looking like he very well might be on his way out. They, they might have fired him after this week if he'd ended up losing the game on Saturday, but they did hold on to beat Holy Cross 31 to 28. Not looking good there. Um, James Madison, a game that we very well possibly could have included in our chaos ratings here. They beat UVA 36 to 35. Always interesting at those in, uh, intrastate matchups where a non-Power 5 team beats a Power 5 team. Always exciting nonetheless. And in what might have been the final game of the Mel Tucker era at Michigan State, the Spartans beat Richmond 45 to 14. If you have not been caught up to date on what's going on with Mel Tucker, it's it's ugly and it's not great. And it's probably going to end up with him being suspended for the next three games and then fired during their bye week in early October. So that's one way to lose out on a crap ton of money on a decade long deal. Corey is to uh, get accused of sexual harassment while working on the job. So not yeah, great. You no, you, you can be a lot of things. You could be a bad coach and you can even have maybe some recruiting violations and still get that money, but you absolutely do not get the money, nor should you uh, if you are credibly accused of uh, sexual harassment at work. And even more is that like, I don't know. I think that the sexual harassment stuff is, is probably going to be, something that he gets like officially fired for. But even if he was able to prove that what he is saying is true and it, it was not sexual harassment, 
during the investigation into it, he lied about it happening on the job or not. And they're like receipts, like literal receipts to prove that what he was doing, which was still inappropriate, was happening while he was working. So like he's getting fired either way, whether it's for sexual harassment or misappropriation of funds or whatever. But like he's out. The The Spartans are getting out of a really boneheaded contract that they, they decided to give him a couple seasons ago. But. All right, let's wrap up our final two chaos games. Uh, and Corey, you uh, kept an eye on Oregon and Texas Tech uh, on Saturday. I did. Yeah, this was a, a close game throughout, a little back and forth. And then fast forwarding to the fourth quarter with just over a minute left. Oregon has the ball. They're moving it down the field. They were down 30 to 28 at that point. So all they need to do is get into field goal range. And they do. With a minute and seven seconds left, they get a 34-yard field goal. It's up. It's good. Texas as a ch- Texas Tech has a chance now. They're only down a single point. They get the ball back. However, the pass with 35 seconds left was intercepted by the linebacker, Jeffrey Bassa. And not only was it intercepted, it was a pick six. However... As we were talking earlier about the Utah-Baylor game, how sometimes it's better to let someone score a touchdown than let them keep the ball and run down the clock. That happened without Texas Tech even trying here. After the interception, (laughs) Bassa runs it right into the end zone. There was no Texas Tech player near him, and he runs in. Now, if his coach could have gotten to his ear, the coach might have said, just fall down, and we can put this game away win by one. However, he ran into the end zone. It was a pick six. Really exciting play for Jeffrey Bassa. But what that means is the Red Raiders still had 35 seconds left to drive down the field. And they got pretty far down the field. They got into Oregon territory enough to throw a Hail Mary to the end zone. And in the final seconds, no time left on the clock. A Hail Mary is thrown at the goal line. It is intercepted by Oregon. The final two drives for Texas Tech both ended in interceptions. One of them obviously understandable in the Hail Mary, the other the pick six. But it's just kind of amazing that Texas Tech had multiple chances to win this game even after throwing a pick six in the final minute, even after allowing a go-ahead field goal with just over a minute left. But the Red Raiders fall short. Oregon holds on in a tough environment down there in Texas. And Oregon, they're still undefeated. They're still ranked. But Solidly chaotic. I would say because it was back and forth, because of the final scores in the last minute and change, because of the pick six, I would say about a 44 for this game. All right. 44 is a good way to end that one. Um, I'm going to finish up our look at the chaotic games of Saturday by heading out to Ames and keeping an eye (laughs) on El Asico, Iowa versus Iowa State. This game was everything you think an Iowa-Iowa State game should be. Iowa State hit a field goal to close out the first half. That was their first points of the game. They were down 17-3. to And you think, okay, the Hawkeyes, they're rolling. They're starting to get some things figured out. Brian Ferentz might actually finally hit the 25-point mark, which he is contractually obligated to hit, or his contract will be null and void in, in as of June of 2024. Just amazing. In the words of Lee Corso, not so fast, my friends, because the Hawkeyes were only able to muster a single field goal in the second half. It was late in the third quarter, and the Cyclones were able to move the ball essentially at will throughout the fourth quarter and ended up cutting the lead to 20-13 to with 2.53 left. They had two timeouts. If they could get a stop, they had a chance to win this game. 
And they did, Corey. They got the ball back with 155 left in regulation. They burnt their timeouts. Iowa, unsurprisingly, could not do anything. Iowa is forced to punt. The Cyclones get the ball back, but they can't do anything. They have two incompletions. They have a run up the middle with, with, with for no gain. Then on fourth and one, they tried to run it up the gut again and ended up losing two yards. So the Hawkeyes actually end up winning 20 to 13. It's the second game of the year in which Brian Ferentz's offense did not score 25 points. If you are unfamiliar with this, Brian Ferentz, the son of head coach Kirk Ferentz, is the offensive coordinator, and he is just awful at his job. And they redid his contract this year basically to say that they have to average 25 points per game and have seven wins on the season, which should that part shouldn't be a problem for, for Iowa. But they have to average 25 points or his contract is void. Now, that doesn't mean that he's fired. That means that they could hire him again at a different uh, at a different contract. But like he's essentially coaching for his job, Corey, and they can't get 25 points. Like what is going on now? Admittedly, Iowa State is like one of the better defenses in the country. They were number 11 in SP plus uh, for defense coming into this season or coming into this game. So like Iowa State's a good team, a good defense, but like. Come on, man. You you got to score 25 points. Absolutely. And it's I think what's more surprising is last week, we, we mentioned briefly the fact that they couldn't score 25 points against Utah State. Yeah. And so if they couldn't do it against them, they're not going to do it against Iowa State. They've got one more game uh, in the non-conference against Western Michigan where they can perhaps run up the score. And he's going to need it because some of these games down the schedule – it doesn't. I'm not thinking that Iowa can score 25 points. His job is certainly in jeopardy. I do have one qualm with the thing that you said at the top. You said this game was everything you think Iowa, Iowa State should be. I disagree. Everything I think that Iowa, Iowa State should be is maybe like a, a nine to six victory. Fair. I uh, El Asico should have zero offense. It should be the ugliest game you could possibly imagine. Maybe a safety, maybe just a couple field goals. There should be no touchdowns in an Iowa, Iowa State game. So not quite. There was a little too much offense for my liking in this one. Uh, both teams, uh, this is just their MO, especially Iowa, is just no offense. Yeah. Um, not the most chaotic. The, the finish ended up being kind of exciting and chaotic. So I would probably go in the 35 range. Does that feel right for you, Corey? Yeah, that, that feels about right. All right. So that is our final game of... Uh, wow, this is interesting. Okay, so I just did the scoring. That puts us at a score of 518, which, if I remember correctly, Corey, that's what we had in week one before swapping out the score for Duke-Clemson. I'm going to have to go back and listen because I, I don't remember if that's actually 100% correct, but I think it's pretty close. But nonetheless, because we did include Duke-Clemson, week number one is still ahead with 555 on the chaos rating. So I, I think we ended up thinking this game was a this week was a little bit more chaotic. We didn't have any super low scores. In week one, we had uh, one in the 20s, one in the teens. So... Maybe uh, maybe this was a little bit more not as high as a, of a chaos rating as the previous week, Corey, but certainly not the lows either. Yeah, it's it's as you said, it's not quite as high once we counted the Duke Clemson game that happened last week. But there were some solid games. I think part of it is that the more chaotic games, the games that were scored in the 70s 
they were a little off the beaten path. That was App State, North Carolina. That was Houston Rice. So these games that weren't high profile, say like Colorado versus TCU last week or Duke Clemson last week, but were still pretty chaotic games just off the beaten path. And we love that here at Fourth Quarter Chaos. We'll take chaos wherever we can find it across the country. So even though it might not have been incredibly chaotic in the more high-profile games, still really great week of college football with some excitement all around the country. All right, looking to week three, what is your prediction for what will be the most chaotic game next weekend? Okay, so next weekend, week three, there are going to be some options. Now, when you talk about marquee games, you're always wondering where the pregame show is going. Where's game day going? They're going to Colorado versus Colorado State. I'm not expecting that to be particularly chaotic. Looking at the schedule, could Wyoming give Texas some fits down there in Austin? They might. That could have some chaos. Tennessee, Florida. I know Florida's not good, but in Gainesville, that could have some chaos. Minnesota, UNC, that could be an interesting mm-hmm. game. Um, Penn State, Illinois, I don't think Illinois has it. Uh, there's a game that, again, it's it's off the beaten path a little. Maybe this is a homer pick for me, but I said last week, I'm always deferential to rivalry games. To me, so much chaos comes from the rivalry, from the the passion, the hatred that comes in these rivalry games. I think that adds extra tension to these. I think there's always room for more chaos in rivalry games. The backyard brawl is going to be back in Morgantown, West Virginia for the first time in years. It was renewed last year in Pittsburgh. Now Pitt heads down to West Virginia. Neither team looking great. Both teams one and one. West Virginia with a loss to Penn State. Pitt with a loss to Cincinnati. So it's not. It's certainly not a high-profile game at this point. However, I do think that there is plenty of room for chaos in a backyard brawl in Morgantown under the lights where fans are going to be burning couches, throwing batteries, doing whatever it is that they do down in Morgantown. It's going to be violent. It's going to be wild. I could very well see an incredibly chaotic game down at the backyard brawl if you're going to take your team i'll throw mine in i think ohio state hosting western kentucky could be especially chaotic western kentucky is one of the best passing offenses in the country ohio state his defenses has looked great we'll see if they can turn that offense around and start to throw the ball as well as they have in years past uh in in columbus next saturday i'm also going to throw out hawaii at oregon hawaii has not been great so far this year they're just one and two. They beat the University of Albany, but lost close to both Vanderbilt and Stanford, relatively close. They're going on the road to take on Oregon, which Oregon's better than either Stanford or Vanderbilt considerably. But Hawaii's been beaten around for a while, and, and they, they, they've they been close. So I'll be interested to see if they can throw a little bit of uh, chaotic magic up there in, in Eugene on Saturday night. Chaos and Rainbow Warriors it goes together like PB&J. Give it to me, please. All right, everybody, that's all that we have for the week two recap episode here from the Fourth Quarter Chaos podcast. You can follow us through the Fans First Sports Network college football feed. You can follow the Fans First Sports Network on social media at Fans First SN. You can follow me at BWW. Matt, Corey, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Corey E. Cohen, C-O-R-E-Y-E-C-O-H-E-N. And you can find me on other social media platforms. Just search for Corey Cohen. You can find me. You can also find Pit Talk Network on Twitter as well. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful week. Try to avoid chaos in your regular life. 
but embrace it on Saturdays, and we will be here next week to recap every single second of the most chaotic action in college football's week three.